0: Romans chapter 9, we will be in verses 1 through 5 tonight. Romans 9, 1 through 5. Please follow along with me. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Amen. We pray for us in our time together in God's Word. God, you are so beautiful and awesome and holy and amazing. We're humbled as we come here to worship you together. We're humbled as we approach your Word. We ask for your great grace. We ask for your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. We ask God that it would be your words and your truths that change us tonight for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Well, here in Romans 9, we find ourselves kind of in the next checkpoint in our journey through Romans. It's been a long journey, and here we are now chapter 9 in the checkpoint. Paul had just finished In chapter 8, if you remember, we spent a long time in chapter 8, it just finished such a a beautiful, a a wonderful, a a strong statement of God's love and His faithfulness and His security for the Christian. And really it would seem as if you could just go straight from chapter 8 and jump right into chapter 12 where the application begins. You're going to see that whenever we get there in chapter 12 of just... Here's all this great theological truth. Here's this great praise of God, and then just jumping straight into application, chapter 12. In fact, some people they feel as if uh, some scholars even they, they say that or wonder if chapters 9 through 11 are misplaced for some reason or in some way it, that's this interruption in the letter. Some even go as far as to say that they believe chapters 9 through 11 are were was like scrolls like like a different sermon that Paul would carry around. With him, And then he just inserted it in here uh, in between chapters 8 and 12. I, I don't think there's really strong evidence to that being true. Uh, it, you'll see it does feel like there's a shift here. But I, I actually think chapters 9 through 11 it, it really is really just a wonderful picture and support and explanation of what Paul's been talking about this whole time. One point that Paul made very clear earlier in this letter is that no one is saved based on their heritage. For instance, you might remember that earlier. He was talking about that. That just because you're a Jew, as he said earlier, it does not mean that you have inherited eternal life. Now, naturally, this would bring up many questions. If If he's saying to the Jew, just because you're the nation of Israel, just because you're a Jew, that does not mean you have eternal life. Then the question would be asked, well, wasn't Israel God's chosen people? Didn't God make a promise to save them? If you don't have eternal life based on your heritage, then then what does that mean for Israel, God's chosen people? What is Israel's place in God's plan of salvation? Has God failed To save the Jewish nation as he promised he once would. These questions would naturally arise. And Paul answers, I think, that question or these questions with an emphatic no. No, God has not failed to keep his promise. God always keeps his promises, including the promise and the promises that he's made to Israel. Now, it's going to be important for us to understand correctly what exactly these promises were, first of all. What exactly do they mean? And how exactly did and is God fulfilling these promises? I think that, though that's, that's where a lot of people go wrong, understanding what exactly these promises are. And we're going to answer those questions as we look at the next three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11. We're going to be talking a lot about Israel. You're going to see a lot of, he quotes a lot of Old Testament. In these next few chapters. But Paul makes clear in these chapters. That God is consistent. That God is faithful. And he is true in fulfilling all of his promises. Whether it's found in the New Testament or the Old Testament. God keeps his promises. And I think Paul does so really with such elegance and balance and grace. We're going to see in these next few chapters. But tonight we're going to see Paul's thesis to this next section. Of chapters nine through eleven, and in this thesis, we're going to see Paul's deep anguish and concern for Israel as they have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And then Paul, Paul follows that up by talking about the advantages that Israel does indeed have by being God's chosen people. All right, so it's going to the next few chapters can be very historical, very heady. So hang in there with us. All right, so just two main. Sections. The first is anguish for Israel, verses 1 through 3. It's going to be two main points and two sub-points per main point. Our first main point is anguish for Israel. And here we first see Paul's genuine love for others. Paul's genuine love for others. Paul seeks to assure his Jewish readers of his genuine and deep love for them. He starts off in verse 1. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. He says, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Paul loves these people, but he knows that they may doubt that in their minds. So he wants to assure them of his love. In fact, he mentions two persons of the Trinity, Christ and the Holy Spirit. He tells them he's not lying. He tells them he's being genuine in his love for them. He doesn't want to just teach them knowledge, but he wants them to know his love for them. He wants them to know that he's being genuine. So he seeks to assure them, specifically his Jewish readers. the reason he seeks to assure them is because he's concerned that there might be some doubt of his genuine love for them. Many of the Jews hated Paul. Now, why? Why would the Jews hate Paul? Let's remember what's happened. Let's remember what's happened up to this point. Paul was once a devout Jew, right? One of the best of the best. Then this guy by the name of Jesus of Nazareth shows up. And he came, and he claimed to be the Christ. He claimed to be the Messiah. And this Jesus, in their eyes, ended up being a criminal. Not a Messiah, but a criminal. And in their eyes, that was proven as he died a criminal's death. And his followers, Jesus' followers, and hundreds of others, claimed that he had risen from the dead. And a group of this man's followers, as in Jesus' followers, they became known as Christians. And Paul, being the good Jew that he was, he was zealous for the law. And he wanted to extinguish this so-called Christianity as it claimed that the Messiah had already come. And so he was zealous for the persecution of these people of this small group called Christians. And he would uphold the law and not allow people to follow this false Messiah, as he would claim. But then something happened to Paul. He claimed to now have seen the risen Jesus. And since that point in which he says, I've seen him, I've seen the risen Jesus. He stopped persecuting this group called Christians and instead he joins them. And not only does he join them, but but he preaches a gospel, not of law like he once did, but now of grace. And not only does he preach a gospel of grace, but this gospel is preached to both Jew and Gentile. They're not allowed to hear this gospel. See, before Paul would have said salvation is for the Jew and for the one who keeps the law. Now it's for the Jew and Gentile. And it's a gospel of grace. See, from the Jews' perspective, Paul is now zealous for the spread of a false religion called Christianity. But not only is he spreading it to the Gentiles, as that was his primary ministry, but he's also sharing it with the Jews. And as a result of all this, it earned him a bad reputation with the majority of the Jewish people. Many claiming that he's anti-Jewish. Many claiming that he's a traitor to his own people. Remember, he was the best of the Jews. And now he's doing this instead. A man who was once fervent in keeping their religion pure was now against their religion and poisoning their people with a false teaching called Christianity. That's how they would view it. And so they hated him. And they set themselves against him. These Jewish people have become his enemy. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes that five times he received from who? The Jews. Forty lashes less than one. That the Jews gave him 39 lashes five times. And he writes that he was in constant danger from who? His own countrymen. As in the Jews. Since his conversion and as time has passed, the Jewish people have become hostile to him and in some sense have become his enemies. And yet, nowhere do we see Paul's retaliation, do we see his hatred or bitterness towards the Jews. Nowhere. Not even once. Not even a hint of it. Instead, We see only love towards them. And look at the words that he uses to communicate his love towards them. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. It torments him. What kind of sorrow does he have for them? He says a great sorrow. What kind of anguish is it? It's unceasing. It doesn't stop. Where is this? It's in his heart. He has this great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. Why? Because the majority of them have not accepted Christ as the Messiah. The majority of them have rejected Christ and therefore have rejected salvation. This great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart is for them to know the Lord. It's for them to accept Christ. It is for them to be saved. This is why his sorrow is so great. This is why his anguish is unceasing. Because he knows that they are perishing. And he loves them. And he wants them to know the Lord. How is it that we might truly love others? By caring deeply. By caring deeply about their understanding and acceptance of the true gospel. Do you love others? Do you anguish over them? Do you have a deep sorrow and hurt and pain and concern for those who do not know Jesus and therefore are perishing because of it? I feel that at times we become maybe frustrated at the unbeliever, or we become upset at the unbeliever, or impatient, or even prideful. Maybe most of the time we become apathetic or just nonchalant about it. We stop caring about the fact that they are lost, that they are perishing. That they don't know true joy. And it becomes their problem, not ours. Why do we not care so much for the lost? Is it because we don't believe that they're actually perishing? Is it because we, we don't believe that the gospel has the power to save them? Is it because we don't believe that they're worth our time? Like what is it? Why don't we care for the lost? I think it's because we don't think like Jesus. Because we don't love like Jesus. And because we're too consumed with ourselves to think about the greatest need of those around us. If you are a Christian, you have been shown the greatest love ever and have been given grace beyond measure. You've been given eternal life. And you've been given the good news of the gospel. And what are you going to do with that? Just hold on to it? Just bury it? While those around you are on their way to eternal death? Do you love others? Do you love them? (laughs) Then share the good news of Jesus Christ. And let his spirit work according to his will. Whether that be those close to you, family members, friends, neighbors, whether that even be your own enemies. In fact, remember, Christian, remember when God first loved you? What did it say when we were in Romans 5, chapter, 10, ch- chapter 5, verse 10? That God loved us even while we were his enemies. In the same way, we ought to love our enemies as well. We ought to love just those who are closest to us, who are going to love us back, as Jesus says in Luke 6, that non believers do that. They love those when they expect to be loved in return. But the followers of Christ ought to love those who do not love back what better way can we love others than to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ and the free gift of salvation found in him? Think about those who you consider your enemy. Think about those who have wronged you. Think about those who, who are out to get you. Think about those who they are they're, they're just difficult to live with. Do you wish salvation upon them? Do you pray for the salvation upon them? Do you participate in sharing the gospel with them? Do you anguish over them? Remember, these Jews had become Paul's enemies. These Jews sought to kill him. These Jews gave him 39 lashes five times. And yet he loves them. And he anguishes over them. Desiring that they would be saved. And that they would be in eternity with him. Like Paul. Have a true, genuine love for others. A love that desires more than anything else. For them to know the gospel. Love others. Secondly, what we see and the anguish for Israel as we see Paul's sacrificial love for others. First, we've seen Paul's genuine love for others. Now, Paul's sacrificial love for others. Well, I think it is remarkable in what we just saw that Paul would love his enemies in such a great way. We've not yet seen how remarkable his love truly is. What is so remarkable about his love is that it is a sacrificial love. We see a sacrificial love. Look at what he says in verse three. He says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, for my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul, are you crazy? Like, what is he saying? What Paul is saying is that he could wish that he would be damned to hell if it meant that his fellow Jew would be saved and go to heaven. That's crazy. Now obviously Paul knows that's not possible. He's speaking emotionally here, not theologically. He just got done talking about his total, eternal security he has in Christ. right? Let's not forget that. He knows he can't lose his salvation, let alone trade it with someone. He knows that. But Paul felt so much love for them that he describes it in such a way that he could hypothetically offer up the most important thing in his heart and the greatest treasure in the universe, his salvation. If he could trade that up, he's saying he would. This is a selfless, sacrificial love. A love that puts others before yourself. A love that is willing to give up anything, even the greatest thing, for the sake of another. That's love. What sacrifices do you make for the sake of the lost? What sacrifices do you make For the sake of the lost. Maybe you're willing to give up five minutes of your time to share the gospel with someone. Maybe you're willing to give up your reputation. You know, they're no longer going to think that you're cool for the sake of sharing the gospel with them. Maybe you're willing to give up comfort knowing that this conversation is going to be very awkward. Would you give up more than five minutes? What about five hours? Would you give up more than your reputation? Not just that they don't think you're cool, but what if it meant being hated? being persecuted, being judged, being mocked because of it? Would you give up more than comfort? What if it meant that that from this point on that this person or this group of people, they would look at you different or they would even they would disown you. Would you give up your time? Your money? Would you give up your life? Would you be willing to lose? Would you be willing to give up. Anything. For the sake of the gospel. What would you be willing to give up? Or maybe rather. What would you not be willing to give up? What would you not be willing to give up? For the sake of the gospel. As much as Paul might want to save them, as he does, as much as Paul is willing to sacrifice for them in order for them to be saved, he can't. He cannot. He does not have the power to save them. No amount of sacrifice from him, no amount of work, no amount of words, no amount of substitution can Paul accomplish for them to be saved. He is not able or sufficient to do so. But there is one who is able. There is one who is sufficient. Our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is his sacrifice that is enough. Not our sacrifice. And we may sacrifice a lot for the lost. And we should. But at the end of the day, we do not save them. And God may use our sacrifice as a means to bring them to himself. Yes, But we don't have the effectual call. God does. We have the responsibility of the universal call. That we talked about a few weeks ago. Thank God then for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is because of his sacrifice that we can be saved. That God came and added humanity to himself. And he lived a perfect, sinless life. And he died on the cross On our behalf. That his sacrifice was a substitution for our life. He died so that we can live. And the sacrifice was sufficient and it's complete. So that there's nothing more that we we need to do or to add to it. His sacrifice is what saves us. Some of you love others so very much. And you would do anything for them to be saved. Maybe you have that person in your mind. I'd do anything for them to be saved. You would even die for them. I understand. I feel the same way. And these are not wrong desires. But we must understand it is not in our power to save them. No one can die for another person's salvation. Jesus is the only one who can. And Jesus did. And it's because of his life and his death and his resurrection that we can be saved. And that others can be saved. It's not our sacrifice. It's his. So what can we do? We can love. We can love. And in that love, we can point others to the one who can save. So Christian... Have a burning desire for the lost to be saved and sacrifice for the sake of the gospel and know that it is in His power that they can be saved. If you are not a Christian, know that it is not in your power. Know that it's not in your parents' power. Know that it's not in my power to save you. It is in God's power. And indeed, he has the power to save. And if you are not saved, look to the sacrifice of Christ and place your faith in his finished work. Repent of your sins and turn to God in worship. He is able to save. So we see the anguish that Paul has for Israel. Next, we see the advantages for Israel. First, we see the anguish for Israel. Now we see advantages for Israel. Verses 4 and 5. Advantages for Israel. Two points here. The first is this, that these advantages have value. These advantages have value. verses 4 and 5. Just listen to these advantages. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. There's an advantage. The glory, there's an advantage. The covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. As Paul has already mentioned earlier in this letter, he, he's about to discuss even further how the Jews, God's chosen people, do not have eternal life through their ceremonial rites, through their heritage, through their tradition, etc. He does, however, want to make clear that there are benefits there are advantages to being God's chosen people. That's what we see in these two verses. And these two verses, they they highlight eight advantages for Israel. Some do eight, some do nine. I went with James Montgomery Boyce. He did a really great job. I thought of outlining the eight. So I'm taking this from him, how he breaks down the eight points, the eight advantages for Israel. So bear with me. It's going to be rapid fire of these advantages. Then we'll get to application. The first advantage we see is the adoption of sons. It's for Israel, the adoption of sons. And this is the only place in the New Testament where adoption is used to refer to Israel. It's typically used to refer to believers. And when referring to believers, adoption refers to the new status, the new relationship that you have with God. It's a result of the new birth. But here, when referring to Israel, it's referring to God's selection of the Jews as an elect nation. That he chose them as his people. Among all other nations, he chose Israel. Now, that does not mean that everyone born of Israel is saved. Why? Because salvation is always an individual relationship between you and God. No one is saved based on someone else. Unless that someone else is Jesus Christ in that context. But Israel has been adopted and is recognized as God's people. Now, I think this is listed first because it makes clear that because Israel is adopted as God's people, then the rest of these advantages belong to them. So let's move on to the other advantages. Second one. Number two. The divine glory. The divine glory. This glory would be referring to the visible presence of God that Israel experienced. People refer to this to the Shekinah glory. This would be seen by Israel in the Old Testament in many different ways. Remember the great clouds separating them between the Egyptians on their exodus out of Egypt. Remember the cloud that guided them for many years in the wilderness. Then the day provided shade and the evening was a pillar of fire and warmth. Remember this this glory, it descended on Mount Sinai when the law was given to Moses. This glory filled the tabernacle and rested over the Ark of the Covenant within the most holy places and so on and so forth. We see it over and over again. Israel was able to visibly see aspects of the glory of God. Crazy. Third, the covenants. Third, the covenants. These covenants were given to who? Some of the heroes of the nation. Think of Abraham. He's the physical father of the Jews. Think of Moses, the covenant of the law. Think of David, the covenant of the eternal kingdom. What do I mean by that? That it's through him, through his line, in which the Messiah would come, Jesus. No nation, aside from Israel, has received these kinds of covenants from God. Fourth, the receiving of the law. And by that, I believe it's talking about that Israel was entrusted with the very word of God. God himself spoke directly to them. And through that, what? We receive the majority of the Holy Scriptures. It's through his word, through the Old Testament, in which it all directs us to Christ, the Messiah. And Israel had the blessing of receiving the very words of God. Fifth, the temple worship. Fifth, the temple worship. There are many, many requirements for temple worship, and the advantage and the blessing of all the different ceremonial rites and requirements for temple worship was to show how sinful we are, and yet how a sinful person is able to approach the Holy God. And eventually, this would point us to the one sufficient sacrifice, Jesus Christ, in which, if we are found in Him, we can now approach God. Six. The promises. This is just taken straight from verses 4 and 5. The promises. There are many promises in which God made to Israel. And we'll be looking at those in the coming weeks, as I mentioned earlier. But one of the main promises is the promise of redemption through the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. That through faith in Him and through His finished work on the cross, we can indeed be saved. And that is a promise from God. Seven. The patriarchs. The patriarchs would primarily be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Some would include Moses and David as well. And the blessing of this is that to have such strong men as examples and patriarchs for the nation is a blessing as they've laid down the foundation of these advantages in which we've already discussed. And lastly, number eight, the human ancestry of Christ. Number eight, the human ancestry of Christ. This is the biggest and I think the best advantage in that Jesus came from this nation. He is the coming Messiah. It is through Christ who is God in which salvation comes. There's not salvation found anywhere else than that through Jesus Christ. None at all. So if you are seeking salvation Outside of Jesus Christ. You are either seeking something that does not exist. Or you're just seeking something that is false. Salvation comes through Christ. And Christ alone. And we see eight advantages Israel has. In being God's chosen people. While many in this room probably do not share these advantages of Israel. Many of us likely I think in some way can identify with the people of Israel. Many of you, maybe not all. Looking around the room, I would bet many of you probably have grown up in a Christian home. Right? Probably most of you have grown up in a Christian home. Most of you, maybe, you've grown up hearing about God. And hearing about who He is and what He's done. You've been brought up in the Word of God. You've been brought up hearing of the good news of the Gospel. You've been brought up memorizing Scripture. You've been brought up with an opportunity to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if this is true for you... You have an advantage that most people in the world do not have. You were blessed to have grown up being taught about the one triune God and the gift of salvation found in Jesus Christ, clearly shown through his holy scriptures. There are many who do not have this blessing. There are many who live their whole life Never seeing a page of the Bible. Never hearing the sweet news of Jesus Christ. And here you are in the United States of America, Bibles all around you, literally all around you, hearing about the goodness and the greatness of God. What a blessing! Out of all the places for you to be born, In the entire world and of all the families for you to have been born into, God has blessed you with these advantages. Be thankful for these advantages. Now maybe you're here and you don't come from a Christian family. That's okay. I'm thankful that you are here right now and are able to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Even that is a blessing far more than we deserve. Are you thankful for the blessing it is to live where you live? And to consistently, maybe even daily, hear the word of God. Be thankful. Now lastly, and this is just piggybacking onto this one, and it's very important. While I say these advantages have value, do not be mistaken. This last point, these advantages do not save. These advantages do not save. This is our last point. Despite all the advantages Israel had, the nation was not saved. There were and there are some today believing Jews who are saved. Yes, but as a nation as a whole, the nation of Israel, they're not all saved even though they had some great and incredible advantages as a nation, these advantages cannot guarantee salvation to anyone. In fact, this is what Paul himself experienced. This is what he shares in his letter to Philippians, Philippians 3. Let me start in verse 4. Very familiar. You hear this often, but listen to it. In this context of the advantages of being a Jew, listen. Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, under the law, blameless. Like what incredible advantages he had and yet when he met jesus on the road to damascus he realized that his advantages did nothing for him he had thought he was righteous but then he met righteous in the flesh paul by the grace of god realized that what he had built as righteousness was worthless he needed a different way that way was jesus He needed the imputation of the righteousness of Christ onto his life, on his account. This is why he continues to say in Philippians 3, now we're in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen to this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says his righteousness does not come from the law. It comes from faith in Jesus Christ. Most of his life, he believed that he was, he was right with God because of the advantages he had as a Jew. But by the grace of God, he came to realize that those advantages had no value in him having salvation from God. Zero. While these advantages were a blessing, they also proved to be a liability. They were for Paul. They were for the Jews. And they can be even for you. Maybe you've grown up in the, in the Christian church. Maybe you've experienced many of the advantages of being raised in a Christian home. Learning good morals. Learning good disciplines. Living in a, in a loving household. You have friends in church. You hear the word of God. Etc, like etc. Et and what an incredible blessing it is for you to be raised in that environment. What great advantages that brings to you but what also great liabilities it can present. You must understand that while these advantages have, have been imparted onto you by your parents, salvation can never be imparted onto you by your parents. You will not be saved based on their faith. You will not be saved based on your parents' relationship with God. You must Be saved by your faith alone. Salvation is in regard to your relationship with God, not your parents, not your families. You must be a follower of Jesus. You must be born again. Do not think that you are right with God because of the spiritual blessings and advantages that you've received Maybe you've grown up praying to God. You've grown up memorizing Scripture. You've grown up knowing the Bible stories, being taught to love God and to love others. And while these are all blessings in your life, and they're probably even bigger blessings than you even realize, they do not save. So let me be clear. No one is saved based on their family's tradition. No one is saved based on their upbringing. No one is saved based on their lifestyle. No one is saved based on their works. One is only saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is by grace. It is a gift given to you by God, not something you earn. It is in Christ. It is His finished work, His perfect righteous life, His substitutionary death, and His victorious resurrection. And it is through faith. Faith in God keeping His promises and faith that Christ's finished work is fully enough. There's nothing else you need. There's nothing to add. Jesus is enough. So by the grace of God, place your faith in Him. Don't get me wrong. Maybe for many of you, God God used these advantages and these blessings as a means to bring the gospel to you. Yes, amen. Maybe God used these as a means to save you. But these things never saved you. God is the one who saved you. If you are a Christian, thanks be to God that he showed grace to you and he saved you from your sins. Well, as we close, as we look at, at this next section, as, as we begin this next section in Romans 9-11, through 11, we look at the promises made to Israel. And first we see that Paul has a deep love for these people as they've rejected Christ as the Messiah. And Paul desires that they would accept Christ and be saved. And second, we see that while being born to this nation does not save you, it does bring great advantages. These advantages do not save So in light of these things, I just want to leave you with two things in mind, and then we'll be done. One to the Christian, one to the non-Christian. The first to the Christian. Christian, have a deep anguish, a deep love, a genuine love for the lost. You've been given eternal life, Praise God! There are people around you who are perishing. They need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Do you love them enough to sacrifice what is needed to be sacrificed in order to share the gospel with them? Love them. May your heart ache for them. Be faithful to the call. To spread the gospel to those around you. Secondly, to the non-Christian. Non-Christian, you have experienced, most likely, great blessings, great advantages in the Christian environment. But know that none of this saves you. Reading the Bible, knowing the truth of the Bible, talking like a Christian, acting like a Christian, looking like a Christian, none of this saves you. It is Jesus who saves. Do you have a personal relationship with him? Do you? Have you placed your faith in him? Have you repented of your sins? Salvation is found in Christ, in Christ alone. So let us have a love for the lost. Let us give God praise for salvation that is found in Christ alone. Let's pray. God, we thank you that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart that anguishes, that that, that has a deep love and concern for the lost. God, give us a boldness to share the gospel. Give us boldness to sacrifice for the sake of your gospel. Lord, thank you for the blessings that we have. To live where we live, to have the freedoms that we have. Lord, to have your word so accessible, thank you, God. Lord, I pray that we would not rely on these advantages as if they save us, but God, that we rely solely on Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that your spirit would continue to convict us and work in our hearts to your glory and your praise. In Christ's name, amen. amen.